My name is Ian and I help with the Christianity Explained course. The Bible reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 31. If you don't have a Bible, there are free Bibles at the back of the church. You're free to take one and read along. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 31. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can give your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you, a ple are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Hey, if you just joined us uh, this week, uh, maybe because you were on holidays or something, uh, as we said, we are going through a series called Divine Design. Uh, and for the last three weeks, um, we started last week, we looked at sexuality, and today we're going to look at singleness and next week marriage. But more than so, we are looking at uh, God's bigger plan and purpose for uh, sexuality, singleness, and marriage. Um, and so, and as we argued last week, we said that the whole purpose of, of relationship with other people, with our sexuality, is really to point us back to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, and so today's topic is just as important because it addresses the issue. If our sexuality is so great and marriage uh, is so wonderful, what hope is there uh, for singleness? And I want to acknowledge uh, before I start that uh, that there are different kinds of singleness. It can be singleness by choice. It can be uh, because you are widowed or because you are still young and maybe you're, you're in the dating phase and so on. But, but there are so many kinds of singleness. Um, and so in a way, it, this applies to, to those in general. But I think it applies 
kind of a little bit more specifically for those who choose not to get uh, married at all. Uh, and we'll see the, the importance of that. Um, but before I begin, allow me to say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the availability of your word that we can read, that we can study. But Lord, we ask that uh, as we look at your word, it, it will not just be a head knowledge, but we pray that you will transform our hearts so that we can put this into action. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the passage that we just read, I don't know if you were able to catch it, but the Apostle Paul pointed out, pointed out the very key verse to a good relationship and life. I don't know if you can see in there, but it says in verse 28, it's right there. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. There you go. That's everything that you need to hear about singleness, and it's nice and clear from the Apostle Paul. Maybe we can just pray and let's, we can eat already. <laughs> uh, but, you know, last week we, we said that our view and our understanding of sexuality is highly influenced by the things around us. So, as a result, it can be very, very subjective. And that is really no different from our understanding of marriage and also our understanding of singleness. For example, uh, typically in a traditional culture, in an Eastern culture especially, uh, we, we tend to make an idol out of marriage and family. That if you're not married, you're seen as someone who has basically no life. Because family, in that tradition or, or culture, family brings honor. The children brings pride. And that's why you do everything for family. You sacrifice yourself for family. Your family is your legacy. And so in a traditional culture, people remain married even if their relationship is falling apart. Why? Because there's more shame in a broken family. But on the other hand, in the Western culture, we also honor marriage. But in a different way, because marriage is seen as a way to help you achieve what you want in life. So you marry for beauty, you marry for money, you marry someone who is as smart as you or maybe marry someone who is more successful than you so that you can, so that you can marry and have the fulfillment and happiness that you want. Again, it's not necessarily bad, but it's dangerous because now you, you make marriage a means to an end. And once you realize that the other person that you married cannot do that for you, their relationship will start to break. So then if you put that in the context of singleness, so in the Eastern culture, singleness is bad because sing, being single means that you, you don't have a belonging, you don't have a legacy to leave behind, you don't have what matters most, family. But in the Western culture, it says that singleness is bad because you don't have someone to satisfy you, you don't have someone to help you achieve your dreams, therefore you'll be left as a loser. See, again, that's, that's just a generalization between two kind of cultures. But it's more complicated than that because now we have a mix of a traditional and modern culture, which then I believe makes it a lot more complex. And so singleness is a lot more difficult, I believe, in church today because it greatly affects us. Now, there's really so much to talk about when it comes to singleness, but, um, but just to help us start it and thinking, I want to show you three things about singleness that I believe we really need to understand to help us moving, to help us get in the right direction uh, and, and understand uh, what singleness is really 
what singleness is really all about. So I want to point out three things, uh, the struggle in singleness. I want to show you the wrong view that we often have as a church, the gift of singleness. I want to point out what Paul really meant when he said that singleness can be a gift. And thirdly, the fulfillment for singleness, the hope that we can have uh, as whether you're single or you're married, whatever relationship that you're in. All right, so the struggle, the gift, and the fulfillment. Let's begin. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but singleness is often, is often viewed quite negatively and sometimes portrayed as an abnormal status in life. That there's a general view that there's something wrong with you if you remain single. For example, society often views singleness in a very negative stereotype that you're almost labeled, as I said, as a loser of society. And so, for example, we have these kind of stereotypes that the crazy cat lady kind of type, right? Because you're lonely, you're antisocial, you have no friends aside from your pets, which turns you crazy. Or there's the 40-year-old virgin type, someone who's nerdy but ignorant of the best things in life, someone who's missing out because they're not in a relationship. And we know that a lot of romantic comedies are about single people being matched with someone or finding their true love. And so there's this depiction that singles are to be pitied. But not just society, family, as we said, is often one of the primary source of criticism for singles. That when you attend family gatherings and there's the auntie and the weird uncle asking you, have you met someone yet? And you'll get comments like, why are you not married? Have you got a boyfriend already? What's wrong with people? You should be married by now. See, we, we, we see getting married as a necessary stage of life. And if you don't get there, your family will feel sorry for you. And it, then, or they'll think that there's something wrong. But again, not just, not just society, not just family, but in churches. That often in, in, in church, there's often a heavy focus of ministries and resources for families, marriage, and kids. Uh, now, I'm not saying that we need to have particular ministries for singles, but I do feel that most churches fail to be inclusive of singles. All right? Again, I'm talking about a variety of singles, whether widowed, divorcee, uh, even young singles, that we have particular ministries for marriage, for kids, and parenting, but often singles... It's not as intentional. But also, I find that in churches, there's a pressure in getting married, I feel. Take note some of these Christian books. One, not yet married. Now, it seems like there's an assumption that everyone will get there. Or, I love this one, God, where is my Boaz? An assumption that we should be looking for a Boaz in our life. Now, I can't comment on the content of the book. I'm just fascinated with the titles because I do feel, again, that even in Christian churches, there seems to be the pressure to get married. And this is possibly why we often love matchmaking our single friends, that we make it a job to save their life from the doom of being single. And now let me give you just two reasons why in the church we struggle with the idea of singleness? There's a lot of reasons, but let me just give you two. All right, there's a lot. Firstly, we sometimes view singleness as a state of lacking, right? 
we often define singleness as a state of deficiency, that you lack something, a negation of what is considered normal and complete. Uh, in his book uh, Sing on Singleness, Sam Albury, he comments this. He says that singleness is all about negation in the church. It's about not having certain things. So he's saying that if you're single, it means that you don't have a husband. You don't have a spouse. You don't have someone to, to cuddle with on the couch. You don't have the memory of having a wedding. The singles are reduced to what they don't have rather than who they are. So this mindset that we have leads to a theology that singles are incomplete. So some people might point back to, to Genesis, Genesis 2 where God says to, uh, where God says, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so people, Christians argue that, see, God created Eve because Adam was alone and he needed completion. Now, the verse does not, does not say it's not good to ever be single. Singleness does not mean automatically loneliness. Because here's the truth that many, many married people feel very, very lonely in their marriage. And I can tell you it's, it's a lot better to feel lonely as a single than to feel lonely as a married person. See, passages like that definitely affirms the goodness of marriage as a solution to loneliness, but it's not the only one. Getting married is not the sole remedy for your isolation. Deep friendship prevents loneliness. Close family relationship helps. Well-integrated and inclusive church community is a big thing. See, reducing singleness to incompleteness or deficit is absolutely harmful, especially in a church. Singleness should be affirmed for who they are, not just what they lack. Now, another reason, another reason is that singleness is sometimes seen to be a status of being immature. That if you are single, you're often viewed as, uh, as being irresponsible and immature. That getting married somehow is associated with reaching maturity and growing up. That we tend to think, especially for men, by the way, that, you, that if you don't get married, you somehow remain as a teenager and unless you get married. That getting married somehow makes you a man. Again, it's a, it's a very dangerous mindset. Uh, for example, again, another, another Christian author uh, Debbie Macon, in her book, Getting Serious About Getting Married, she said this, that Christian singles suffer from prolonged adolescence and responsibility deferral. She's arguing that getting married is the key to maturity. So what does that say for those who choose to remain single? That they're immature? A, a Christian psychologist Erica Tan points this out. She said, maturity is not a factor of being married or not. I've, counsel I've counseled married couples who fought, who fought childishly and demonstrated extreme emotional immaturity. Just because you're married, even if you have kids, it doesn't mean you are automatically mature. Well, because at the same time, I know single Christians who have been single their whole life, who have shown Christ-like maturity by serving, by their wisdom, by their self-discipline, and their spiritual leadership. Marriage does not equate maturity. The problem 
is not singleness, but it is sinfulness. That you can be just as selfish, just as arrogant and lustful and childish if you are married. And you're not sin prone just because you're single. And so if we hang on to the idea that marriage is, is going to catapult your YouTube maturity, we will be setting up marriage for failure. And this faulty mindset suggests that singles cannot grow spiritually with the same depth as those who are married. Again, now, you know, next week we'll see how marriage can be an incredible tool for maturity. But it's not the ultimate weapon against sin. It's not the ultimate method for Christian maturity. That God gave us the Bible, the scriptures, he gave us prayer, he gave us Christian fellowship, he gave us serving, sometimes he gives us suffering, he gives us solitude, he gave us, he gave us worship. There's a lot of things that can help us mature. Marital status does not determine our spiritual state. That the path of holiness lies in dying to self, not marrying someone. That you can, again, you can easily remain just as selfish and be focused on yourself in your marriage. So, which leads us to our second point. Let's look at this popular idea of, of the gift of singleness. All right? And before we get to this gift of singleness, let me just set the passage that we read in context. But let me read it again from verse 26. Paul said that because of the present crisis, I think that, this is, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Now, if you read the whole chapter, even just reading that passage, it seems like Paul is being a cranky old single guy. But remember, in Ephesians, he, he talks about marriage in such a beautiful and grand understanding and now it seems like here he's detesting a marriage. And furthermore, the reason that he gives, verse 29, he says that the time is short, meaning that Jesus is coming back soon. But we know that Jesus hasn't returned, right? That's what it sounds like. But let me give you the context of the passage. Because back then in the Jewish uh, expectation, the Jewish culture was that the, the Savior, the Messiah will show up. And this Messiah will bring in the new kingdom, the new world, where everything will be renewed. Everything will be made perfect right again. But that, we know that that's not God's plan. The plan is that the Savior will come twice. The first time he came to, was to defeat sin by dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And by coming back to life, he defeated death. That's the first coming. The second coming that we're still waiting on is that he will restore everything else and he will bring judgment to his enemy. All right? So the first time he comes in, he brings in the new kingdom. The second time he comes in, he will complete the new kingdom and do away with the old. So we are in what we call the now. The kingdom is here. It's now, but not yet. Right? The new kingdom is here. It's, it started, but not yet complete, not yet fully consummated. So for Paul, or really throughout the Bible, 
it means that we live in between these two kingdoms, all right, two eras. Uh, it's like when, uh, when we bought a house a few months ago, uh, and before I, we moved in, I did a lot of renovations in the house, and it took us at least a month before we moved in. So we own the house, right? It's ours. We have access. We visited it. We used it, but not yet. So we were living in between two houses. And I think this is the same idea, idea here. So Paul is really answering, how do we live our lives between two worlds, between two times? And basically he says, well, here's what you do. You live your life. Go get married. Go buy a house. Go to work. Do life. But always do it in the light of the future, of your new house. So throughout his letter, he basically says, don't forget how things are going to end. Don't forget who you are now. So if you have a lot of money, if you have lots of possession, that's great. But don't get too attached. It's not real wealth. It's not real currency in heaven. Those who are grieving, he says, go mourn. Go. Yes, it's good to be sad. It's part of life. But don't overdo it. Remember, there's a resurrection for the dead. Those who rejoice, be happy, celebrate, have a party. But don't overdo it and think that this is the best thing in life. It's nothing to what is yet to come. And then Paul applies that in marriage and singleness. He basically says, if you're married, then do marriage. Do life. Love your spouse. Raise a family. Stay committed and persevere. Then he goes, if you're single, now you can remain single if you want. You don't have to get married, but feel free to marry if you want. But don't forget that the ultimate marriage is in, the, is in the future. That the greatest spouse that you will ever have is Jesus Christ. And you are yet to see him face to face. The ultimate wedding banquet is yet to come. Is yet to happen. And so all the deepest desire for love, for, ex for acceptance, for, for assurance, for security, for unity, for belonging, for family. Is yet to be fulfilled in the future. And whatever you have here, Paul says, is nothing but a foretaste of what you are about to receive in the future. Live your life now, but not yet. So if you have a family, you have a spouse, that's great. But don't get too attached because you won't be married in the future. If you're not married, don't pity yourself. Don't, don't be too sad because something is better yet to come. That's the argument that Paul is giving here. The point is everything you do here has to be constantly done in the light of the future. The future is our hope. It will change everything. The second coming will equalize everything. That's the theology of the New Testament. See, Paul doesn't say, oh, if you're married, abandon your spouse. Go for a mission. No, no, no. He says, you're not sinning. If you're, sing if you're single, great. You're not sinning. You don't, but you don't have to get married. It's not necessary. It's not the best thing about your life. And here, here, within that context, sorry, that was just the context. Here's why he calls singleness as a gift. All right? Because when we hear that, the, that singleness is a gift, we think it's like the, the ability to, to happily avoid getting married. We think that the gift of singleness is someone who has the abil ability not to want a spouse or a family. And so people start to think, well, I don't have this gift because I want someone. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. But where else 
does Paul use the word gift in 1 Corinthians? What, is, what, what does he talk about? He talks about spiritual gifts. And what are spiritual gifts for? For the benefit of the church. See, when Paul uses the word gift, he's not talking about you having a special ability for your own benefit, that you can cope with loneliness because, because you don't have the desire. The gift is for the benefit of others and the church. And that's why Paul is arguing that not so much as singleness as a gift, but that singles are a gift. That singleness is the unique freedom to serve God wholeheartedly, to serve the church, to love the church, and to build God's kingdom. And so his argument is that if you're married, then your, your concern will be the affairs of this world. Now, again, that's not necessarily negative. He's just stating the obvious that if you're married, before you do things, before you decide on things, you have to consult the spouse. You have to think of the kids. You have to take care of the family. But if you're single, Paul's argument, you're much more free to drop things and attend to God and God's people. See, the purpose of marriage, as we'll look at next week, is to serve others, to serve your spouse, to serve your kids, but the purpose of singleness, it's the same thing. To serve others, to serve the family of God, but in a way you're not locked in to your blood family. See, singleness is a gift because you are more available for others, especially for those in the family of faith. But again, I want to be clear here that the gift is not the absence of desire for marriage or kids. That Paul was single and he could have struggled or have wanted to be married or have kids one day. But the gift, the gift, sorry, is not a deep feeling that you're happy to be alone. I believe Paul is basically saying that you're the gift and your commitment and your perseverance and your joy to remain single and use your singleness for the, for the people of God and the, kingdom, and the kingdom of God is the gift. Because singleness, again, in general... Allows you to be more free, more available, more flexible than married people. And as Paul said, that you're, you're less concerned about this life, which is kids and family. That it's easier to take risk and assume responsibility. Now, do you see that the gift of singleness is not like when you get socks for Christmas that you're thankful for, but you don't really want it. The gift of singleness is having the opportunity, like Paul, to commit yourself more to God and to God's people and to God's mission. That singleness is not a curse, but a calling to be more self-giving. That's why singleness can be a lifetime by choice. It can be temporary when you're young or it can be towards the end of your life. But the point Paul is making is that your status as a single person means that you have the opportunity to give yourself more to others. Now, church, if we see singleness in this light, in this context and theology, how much more would we honor and love the single people in our church who are committed and devoted to us, to God, and to the mission? And imagine how much more we can be encouraged and be motivated by seeing the singles in our church being so selfless and focused and serving God and truly displaying the heart of Jesus. 
And yet, as I argued, often we see the opposite. We think that they're less holy, they're selfish, they're more immature. See, marriage, as we'll see next week, is a call to selflessness, to give, to, to be self-giving. But you do it to a specific person, you do it to your spouse. But singleness is the same way. It's a call to selflessness and to self-giving, but to more people. In some ways, it's, it can be a greater sacrifice and maturity and commitment than marriage. No wonder Jesus and Paul, they remain single because it's a way for them to give themselves more. And this is why singleness is a hard calling in a way because you are sacrificing your desire, your intense desire to be with someone for the sake of God. Now, how can you have that power? Well, our third point, the fulfillment for singles. You know, last week we said that the primary purpose of our sexuality is worship. That our sexuality really points us back to the intense love of God, but also how much God's love is the ultimate satisfying love that we will ever need. That our sexuality um, communicates, our, we have it because it communicates our deepest longing, but that, that can only be fully met and by the infinite love and the grace of, of our Lord. Now let's go back to that idea and that argument. And let's go back to that quote that I used. That when John Piper said this in his book, um, he said that God made us powerfully sexual so that he will be more deeply knowable we were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it will be like to know Christ supremely. Why do we have such deep, deep desires for relationship? Well, we have a desire for intimacy because we have that desire for intimacy, as we can see from the quote, because we have a desire, this innate desire, not just for another person, but it's really we have a desire for God. And in a way, singleness is a step ahead of what it means to make Christ our supreme lover. That singleness, in a way, paves the way in trusting and knowing and depending on Jesus Christ our, as our ultimate satisfaction. That single people might be able to relate in Psalm 73 more when it says that who... Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The single people, especially those who choose not to get married at all, can say through their experience that God is truly the one that can satisfy their deep longing, their deep desire, even their sexuality. That they can trust Him, that they don't need anyone to fulfill that like in the Western culture, because they can say that Jesus does that for me. Because what's so good about marriage? Well, marriage allows you to know someone so deep, but see, Jesus Christ offers that for all eternity starting now. Married couples will have to leave each other one day, but Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. What's so good about marriage? Well, you can have children of your own. But the kingdom of God says, I can give you a lot more that in heaven, because of your sacrifice, you will have spiritual sons and daughters who will be forever grateful of what you've done for them in this life. See, Christianity teaches that the comforts of marriage and family, they're just, they're great, they're beautiful, but they're just temporary blessings suited for this age alone. And you can and you should enjoy them, but don't forget that it won't last because they are nothing but a hint of what is yet to come. 
Now, I might show my age here, but in the movie, Jerry Maguire, I think it was around 1996 when it came out, um, Tom Cruise, he realized his deep love for this girl, Dorothy, played by Renee Zellweger. And, he, and so when he realized that, he flies back to meet her, and he gave this wonderful, wonderful deep speech of how much uh, she meant to him. And he finishes, he finishes the speech with these famous words, which is often used now, but he said this, that you complete me. And, and that was like a very momentous, like, historical part of the movie, really, because we, we often quote it now. You might not know, but that's where it came from. See, deep down, we want to hear those words from someone, and we want to say those words to someone else, that our deepest desire is to know and be known fully. Now, remember, even in our communion, Jesus Christ has everything in heaven. Except what? Except you. Though God, he became man. Though sinless and perfect, he took our sins and he died for it. Why? So that he can bring us back to him. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't need us. We don't complete him, but he wants us. Because he's the only one that can completely satisfy us. That can complete us and satisfy us. And so the gift of singleness is really the invitation to delight in Christ above all things in this world. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for your deep love and desire for us, that though you don't need us, you want us to know you. And so, Lord, help us to know you in to know you more and more. Help us to, to understand who you are and so that we can really let go of the desires of this world, though great as they are, that we can enjoy them and we are thankful for them. Lord, help us to always live our life in the light of the future of what is yet to come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>